Hello and welcome to the DC Wash-Up. It is the high and dry edition here this week. I am producer Roscoe Whalen and joining me in the studio today is Chief ABC Correspondent Phil Williams. G'day everyone and wash-up is the word uh, because we are <laughs> well, that's good too. We are, we're in the wash the wake of uh, Hurricane Harvey and uh, of course uh, we've had our intrepid reporters down there uh, for the last few days doing a fantastic job telling these amazing stories of, uh, of, a, of an unprecedented flood that's hit, uh, hit the, the mainland. I was going to say, you've been here, what, all of 10 days and there's no one left in the office. I don't know what you've done. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm going to have to change my personal hygiene, clearly. <laughs> but I think, that, I think our reporters will have a, a few hygiene issues with themselves well, because true. now it's getting to the very smelly end of, uh, uh, of the flood where everything's starting to rot. And, and, mm. and, and, anyway... Why am I talking about this? We should be talking to our correspondent. Right, so let's, uh, let's dial up Connor Duffy, who's been on the ground for ABC all this week in Houston. Connor, are you there? I am, hello. <laughs> How are conditions on the ground in Houston now? Um, well, um, it's actually really sunny now, which is great, um, but in some ways it's a bad combination of floodwaters and rising humidity. Um, the place is starting to stink, and... There's also still huge sections of the, the city that are still underwater. Um, the flooding here isn't expected to peak until Saturday, I think. Um, we're still finding it difficult getting around. We've just been just gone to interview a family who have already more or less smashed out most of their house. Um, they had floodwaters about a metre high in there, and um, it was uh, actually their grandmother's house, and we spoke to um, her daughter and her granddaughter. Her daughter grew up in the house, and she was talking about the, her childhood memories and um, watching as a um, Hispanic labour crew basically jackhammered and tore it down, which was pretty tough for them. Um, so there's a lot of people in Houston still doing it hard, and um, big sections of the city here still cut off from one another. I, I guess uh, it, one of the features of this is the the lack of acrimony. There doesn't seem to be a lot of finger pointing. Is that what you've experienced? Yeah, it is, Phil. And it's been really surprising on the ground. Um, yesterday, we were at the main evacuation centre um, in Houston, which, um, as of when we got there, according to the Red Cross, had ten thousand four hundred people in there. Um, you know, some with pets, some with you know, just the wet shirt on their back that they left with. And um, we were sort of expecting the, the vibe in there to be pretty downbeat, but we were really surprised by how upbeat people were. People were singing and breaking out into song, and um, there was basically a non-stop stream of volunteers coming in there with food and supplies to help people out. Um, everyone, of course, remembers Katrina. It's sort of what I thought of them were starting to move from that rescue into recovery phase. But for now, um, Houston's um, joined together and is getting it done. I guess, too, the, uh, we, we've concentrated on Houston for good reason. It's a major metropolitan area, but it's, it's far and wide, isn't it? It's affecting little places. It's affecting farms. That's right. It's a huge area from where the hurricane first crossed um, at Corpus Christi, um, sort of south and west of here, I think, roughly, uh, and then made its way up here and did its massive rain dump and then moved to um, Beaumont, which I think has around about 200,000 people in it and which is where, which is kind of ground zero at the moment where our colleague Stephanie March is. And um, some of the pictures and reports we've had from people on the ground there are that it's really still um, 
a terrible scene there. Um, and over the next few days, it's going to move up into Louisiana and they're going to cop it. So it's, it's like a, you know, if you wanted to compare it to Australian terms, like a really big chunk of the East Coast um, and some of the more populated areas having to deal with this. And Connor, um, you mentioned some of those pictures that obviously our viewers have been seeing on TV as well. But what what is it logistically like as a reporter on the ground trying to get around and tell these stories in, in floodwaters? It's really difficult. Um, we basically just are dealing with constant road closures and then even more difficult really are the, the marginal roads that haven't been closed where um, you can see cars stranded there and you have to make a judgment call about whether or not you can go down them and um, obviously you want to get as close to the story and tell people what's going on here on the ground that you've got to be constantly aware of your own safety and then um, you know we got on a boat with people and we're um, riding around through floodwaters with um, letter boxes and all sorts of things sticking up out of the water that we have to keep an eye on um, and yeah, it's, it's a it's a difficult operation, and um, you see some of the big US networks here, and they've got armed guards and hired boats and helicopters, and we're basically just driving around trying to um, do it ourselves. I guess there's uh, one other aspect of this is that they could have cleared the city or attempted to clear the city. Uh, the mayor said they didn't want to do that. They didn't want the chaos that that would create of uh, several million people trying to leave it at once. But do you think in hindsight there that was a good call? Look, I think um, probably the answer lies somewhere in between. Um, I know that the last time they had a, a major flood here and ordered an evacuation, a mass evacuation, when they were doing the post-mortem, they found that most of the deaths actually occurred from traffic accidents of everyone trying to get out on flooded roads. But then on the other hand, um, we spoke to a lady in the shelter yesterday, Sherry Banks, who was there with her two children, and um, she stayed because the mayor said, um, you know, if you're in a two-storey house, you'll be fine, just stay put. And then the water was up to her neck and her refrigerator was floating around. And in some ways, I think that warning made people more complacent. So I think maybe the answer would have been to try and shift people to higher ground within the city limits so that you had people more prepared and alert for what they're about to face but without the chaos of a mass exodus from the US's fourth biggest city. But I guess to be fair uh, they simply haven't experienced anything like this ever. Yeah exactly and like really um, I've been asked about this a number of times from people um, sort of thinking that the, the job hasn't been up to scratch or that Things could have been done better, and I think, you know, really everyone should wait a little while to see that because when you, you hear and you see, you know, there's literally dozens, maybe up to a hundred individual flashpoints all through the city with water peaking and rising and falling at different times, reservoirs overflowing, massive parts of the city cut off from one another. Um, a couple of days ago, we spoke to a fire service guy who dealt with 146 calls for help by. 11am and had a long day and night ahead of him. We've spoken to um, doctors, nurses, police, ambulance people all working basically 24-hour shifts, 12 on and then trying to get some sleep but on call in the next 12 hours. Um, so the, the scale of the task and the ability to get clear real-time information out has been, it's been really tough and it's been interesting. Social media actually has 
really helped authorities with them able to get, um, you know, instant calls for help from people in places where phones aren't working. Just finally, on a positive note, because we always like to be optimistic, uh, even in a yeah. flood, uh, my, the greatest uh, pictures I found, the, the most amusing pictures, uh, was the guy catching a catfish in his own living room, <laughs> yeah. leaping on it, and then actually pulling up a catfish, a live catfish in his own living room in the water that was there. Uh, have there been any heartwarming or funny moments that you've uh, observed? Yeah, I've been, I've been really impressed with how everyone in Houston handling this situation. Um, we had a, a funny moment yesterday with a guy at the convention centre who his own home had been flooded and was there volunteering and said, you know, I ain't got no teeth left, but I'm still smiling. Um, what, were, the, were his teeth washed away or...? Um, look, I wasn't really clear. He had to rush off to help someone. I, I, it looked like the teeth situation could have been there for a while. But um, what is certainly true is that he had lost all his own possessions and was still helping out and was kind of dancing and saying that he was energised by um, the reactions he was getting from the people he was helping. Um, we also had, you know, spent time with people out on boats who, um, you know, were going around door to door offering people medical help or um, trying to get kids out and, you know, really sort of heartwarming um, community spirit here. There's the, my other favourite clip, which has just come out from a local news crew here captured yesterday, was a guy sitting, returning to his flooded home with water still about a metre high and sitting down and banging out a few tunes on the piano. Um, so, yeah, it's really, um, you know, the, there's been this hashtag, Houston Strong, um, which has been going around and on the ground that can certainly test that it's a real thing. Well, hopefully he was playing Singing in the Rain, something like that. <laughs> <laughs> Boom. <laughs> All right, Connor. Well, thank you so much for taking some time to talk to us. I know you guys are hard at it there on the ground. And thanks to Brad as well for bringing us those great pictures for ABC News. Um, safe travels back. Hopefully we'll have you home and dry in a couple of days' time. Excellent. I'll hold you to that. <laughs> See you, mate. Okay, bye. And, Phil, the, the line going around Washington this week was for the first time Donald Trump was dealing with a storm not of his own making. He he went down to Texas earlier this week. How was he received on the ground there? Well, look, he was received politely. He was received enthusiastically uh, by some crowds that heard where he was turning up. Uh, I mean, his his itinerary wasn't actually uh, publicised, so... Uh, and he addressed the crowd uh, in his usual way. He's great with crowds. I mean, you mm. know, that's his great strength, is, uh, especially if they're on board politically, which most of these people were, obviously. Um, but look, it's symbolic, really. The president goes down. Uh, he sensibly stayed away from where the real trouble was in Houston at that time. Uh, he said he didn't want to distract from that operation, and he didn't. Uh, but uh, unfortunately, in some in some quarters, he was trounced by his own wife because she wore heels on the way to there. <laughs> and there was a great sort of sense of, well, what's she wearing heels in a flood to? Uh, that's a little unfortunate. Not wrong, fair. Wrong types of pumps. Yeah, exactly. To, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Flood fashion. <laughs> 101. So, and, and you mentioned Donald Trump going to an area that was, you know, the storm had already passed. There was a lot of back and forth we hear 
hearing about where he was going to go. It was indicated that he actually wanted to go to ground zero of where things were at in Houston. Obviously, a presidential convoy is a huge operation and they didn't want to take resources away from the effort. His aides apparently wanted him to go to San Antonio, which was further afield, but kind of where the hub of emergency services were basing out of. He wanted to get closer, and they ended up with this compromise of Corpus Christi. Subsequently, there's been these tweets that Donald Trump's put out in the promotional presidential way saying, now that I've seen the the impacts of Hurricane Harvey firsthand, I know how much Texas needs help. And the picture is of Donald Trump sitting in this evacuate or not evacuation centre, into basically this headquarters for personnel, looking at a map. And he's now been criticised that he hasn't actually met with any victims of the flood during his time down well, there. Fair you're really, unfair. You're really uh, unfair, I think, because you really, uh, your first responsibility in that particular scenario is not to be a burden. You know, Everyone's focused on the job at hand, and that's rescuing people. And at that time, people were still dying. They're still drowning. Uh, and so he didn't go into those areas, whether he wanted to or not. Uh, and so already, though... He does have a large entourage. He's got uh, state governors. He's got all the the FEMA experts uh, briefing him for the cameras, largely, no doubt, but but they're there. That's enough distraction, I think. Now, he says he's going back too, and uh, that that hopefully will mean he will get amongst it and meet the people, and that's what he'll want to do. But again, will the timing be right? And that's that's a very difficult, nuanced thing to, to do. And, you know, he's not well known for nuance, Mm. Uh, he's certainly known for directness, uh, so it remains to be seen if he can recover from that. But I don't think it's done great harm to his presidency. Or it, it, This isn't the George Bush moment, re-Katrina. Uh, mm. This ha- hasn't been a failure. It's not been seen as a dereliction of duty by Washington. So I don't think he's going to suffer that sort of criticism. Even in natural disasters, there's politics, right, Phil? Can't get away from it. <laughs> no, absolutely not. And, that's, of course, it's not the only thing he's been concentrating on. I mean, let's, let's, let's look at North Korea, sure, for example. Let's, let's do it. Let's get away from a flood, or at least a, a flood of politics of a different kind and a very mm. dangerous kind, more da- far more dangerous than a flood, in fact. Uh, and this is, of course, the missile test that was uh, conducted a few days ago. Missile fired from North Korea. Hwasong-12 actually overpassed uh, um, Japan. They took it to the UN Security Council. We got the usual words of condemnation. And Donald Donald, uh, Trump then tweeted that basically the time for talks is over. We've been taken for a ride. Uh, They've been extorting money for for the last 25 years, and uh, the time for talking is over. Well, that was almost immediately contradicted by James Mattis, who is his um, defence secretary, uh, who basically said diplomacy is never dead. We've always, we're always open to talks. You know, we're, this is not a, an end game as far as talks go. And also, an, another of his uh, disarmament uh, uh, negotiators was at a conference on disarmament in uh, Geneva and, and said the same thing: that uh, that you never you never give up on diplomacy, and. If you do give up on talking, well, what's left? Um, you know, it's guns, it's it's missiles, it's it's the unthinkable, and it really is the unthinkable because uh, the just the array of weaponry on both sides of that thirty eighth parallel, forgetting missiles, forgetting nukes altogether, uh, is just uh, horrendous and would cause potentially millions of, of deaths. Does Donald Trump have a point though? Because he says the time for talks are over. We've been talking and talking for twenty five years. 
you, you're true in that what's left after there are no more words to say, but we've been saying a lot of words for a long well, time. he's absolutely right. And, uh, you know, the North Korea has, has played the West and played the region uh, uh, beautifully for, for, you know, three decades, perhaps longer. Uh, and here's how it goes. Uh, they say what appear to be crazy, threatening things. They may be lobbing uh, a missile here and there. The region gets nervous. Oh, oh my goodness, you know, they're, mm-hmm. they're, they're really serious this time. And we have negotiations and they end up with money and uh, lots of money. And, we, uh, and, and they end up winding back their nuclear program for a period. But it never lasts. And uh, then they get the, back to their old bad old ways and then they do it again. I've seen this time and time again over 30 years. I was uh, first sort of covering this story uh, when I was working in Japan back in the early 90s. So this is no – he does have a point. President Trump is right when he said, you know, that these talks have failed. Um, what's changed? Before it didn't matter that much because uh, the military equation was, was pretty well static what has changed is the acquisition of uh, long-range missiles, ICBMs, and the possible militarization of nuclear weapons. Therefore, the threat uh, that they could uh, actually fire these off at the uh, continental USA. That's changed the game because every president has said uh, in the last uh, 30 years or so, this can't happen. Well, it does look as though this has happened, or at least it is about to happen, and Trump is the one that happens to be in the seat at the time. He has an element of unpredictability about him, as we've discovered over the, the past few months. You've got two unpredictable elements there, and that the danger is you get an accident. You know, someone, and it can, it can come as easily as someone firing a shot mm-hmm. at, in, the, in the DMZ, and, and, and then it's all on. And uh, it's very hard to unwind that. You know, there's no hotline. There's no hotline between Pyongyang and Washington. That sort of conversation would have to go via Beijing. So it's very hard to see, if you get a crisis point, how it de- de-escalates uh, before the unthinkable happens. So that, that's, my, that's my worry. It's the accident or the, it's the, the misspoken word that uh, looks like a threat or a misfired or misdirected missile that looks like it's heading towards Guam, for example, and is seen as crossing the, the red line. So awful, awful, intractable problem. I don't have any answers. Clearly no one's got any answers. Uh, but the, the military option is absolutely desperate and dire. Phil, I'm glad you mentioned that you've been covering this story for 30 years because something you revealed to me this week, which I didn't know, was that you'd actually travelled to North Korea in a work capacity. And CNN actually have a correspondent that's based there. I think he's the only one that we know in terms of a broadcast reporter that's appearing regularly and not in any sort of covert way based in Pyongyang. And there were certain triggers within his own crosses that reminded you quite of your visits there. Can you explain? Yes. Yeah, look, this was an amazing trip. Uh, And look, let me say, you know, I think it's extraordinary that CNN has managed to get a a reporter in there who seems to have a fair degree of latitude. Now, Mm. I'm sure there are things he can't say. You you would have to say that there are elements, for example, directly criticising Kim Jong-un would be probably a step too far, but he's been able to get out in the streets, talk to people. People have expressed their honest opinions. It does appear to him. So that, that's in itself extraordinary. There was some music 
playing in the background in one of his stories. And he said, look, I just want you to hear this. So just let's take a few seconds to listen to this. And it reminded me uh, of the music. It was a similar sort of music. And it was the first morning that we were in Pyongyang. I was with Alexander Downer, who was then foreign minister, and it was a period of detente, which sort of obviously fell over. Um, but we could hear this music. It was loud music coming from the street. I went downstairs from the hotel in Pyongyang and there was a band and the band was playing music and what it was was to G up the workers and it happened every morning, G up the workers as they went off to the salt mine or wherever it was that they worked. <laughs> which they had no choice to go <laughs> which to. Which they had not. Not, very little choice. It was the most bizarre place on earth that I've ever been to. It, uh, I, I would say if you can't get a flight to Mars or the moon, go to Pyongyang. Uh, maybe not now. Well, I don't think you can anymore if you're American as of Friday. No. The State Department issuing you restrictions. That's right. And, and so bad luck. No, for very good reason. They don't, they don't want uh, Another hostages. Another for example. Yes, exactly. Hostages, uh, effectively. Uh, I mean, they've, they've got Clearly, they've got uh, one in a CNN reporter, <laughs> but uh, and and that that is that actually seriously would be a worry if you were that reporter. If things went bad militarily, I don't think your prospects would be looking too good. So mm. he's very brave doing that. Mm. Uh, but it's 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 an incredible access. It's it's the first time I can remember that sustained long-term reporting live also coming out of Pyongyang has happened. And so, mm. yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm glued to every, every cross. <laughs> I think it's just amazing I'm sitting here thinking how much uh, we've talked about North Korea on this podcast and the way the Trump administration is handling that situation for basically months. And for a president that was elected on an American-first, isolationist sort of approach, how much of his first eight, nine months have been about his relations with foreign nations. And I mean, it's obvious that it was going to happen in one way or another, but how much of his presidency is being shaped by foreign diplomacy? Well, if you look at Russia, of course. Well, in, and that's a, where I wanted in, to segue. In, in a way uh, that he feels very, very uncomfortable, of course. He's um, desperately worried about this investigation, the Mueller investigation that uh, may, may yet... Uh, uncover some uncomfortable linkages. Uh, clearly, there are questions being asked, and clearly he's very worried about his family and uh, his other p- potential links uh, to his campaign. Remains to be seen where all that leads, uh, but, um, well, for the first time, we've had some clear action initiated by Trump uh, mm. against the Russians, and that is the order of the closure of uh, a couple of consulates in the U.S., this is commensurate with the same order that's been given to close consulates and representative offices in uh, in, in in Moscow and other other cities in the, the uh, in uh, Russia. So it's kind of tit for tat. But this is the first time we've actually seen him initiate an action that's uh, against the Russian interests. Of course, he'll be quite eager to be seen now and then as uh, standing up for America against Russia. Many people have, have regarded his actions so far to date as uh, carefully avoiding any criticism mm. uh, of Russia, uh, a place that he says he wants good relations with, and that's a fine aspiration, but on what terms? So, and this, in terms of the timeline, goes back to the Obama administration that, um, you know, compelled Russia to close down a couple of compounds here and in New York um, because of their actions in the 2016 election, the meddling, which Donald Trump has failed to really say definitively it was the Russians and we're going to 
get revenge on them. Subsequently, Putin has then expelled, I think, over 700 diplomats, US diplomats or, from Moscow. Or, or local employees. Local Most employees, of them actually right. employees. <coughs> and uh, Donald Trump, when that happened, said, right. you've done us a favour, you saved us some money. That's 700 salaries we don't there's, have to there's pay. There's businessman right there. <laughs> so it'll be interesting to see if Vladimir Putin says the same and is happy that he's going to save a few dollars in the United States now, or if there's going to be another retaliation again. This is it. And, and where does it end? We're, we're in a bit of a spiral with this relationship. Clearly, it's exactly the opposite. Uh, to what Donald Trump wanted. Now, mm. why he wanted that close relationship and just how close his organisation or personally or family or whatever remains to be seen. That's all to come in the future. Uh, but uh, he's said many times, you know, we should be good friends. Why not? And, um, well, hopefully uh, they can be uh, for, for good reason and on good terms and uh, on good sound diplomatic uh, footing. But uh, for the moment, it looks pretty bad. I, I haven't seen relationship uh, that look this bad, really. You'd have to go way back to the Cold War and probably back to the Cuba crisis. Yeah, quite possibly. Phil, that, that ends your whirlwind fortnight in the DC Bureau as well. Thank you very much for stopping by. Any final thoughts about uh, what Washington's like now? I mean, the last time you were here was actually over the election, wasn't it? So... Um, George Washington was still a boy when I was here last. Yeah, no, here for the election. Look, I, I think I think what really strikes me is the polarisation of this mm. country. Now you could see it during the election, but now you've got media organisations that that are basically set up to pander to whatever particular political belief you have, left, right, whatever, in in the centre. Not much centre, I may say. So what concerns me is there's no meeting point. There's no point at which reasonable Americans who have different views can actually listen to each other, perhaps be influenced by another, at least understand one another. It's very shouty, it's very loud, and uh, in some respects it sounds violent. And I do worry about the, the fracturing of this country when people have had the ability to select the, the media that they want to hear they're going to get the media that uh, that suits their political view, and that's going to reinforce. It's a, it's a circle, and uh, the thing is, you've got all these circles spinning around, and they're just bouncing off each other. There's there, there's no point of coalescing, and that's what I worry about with the future of this country. Geez, bleak note to end it on. So if you want good media, you should probably listen to the DC Wash Up every week. Phil won't be here, but we'll probably have him back again sometime soon. I will be here, though. So as always, thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next week.